0: AFIO Now is presented by Northwest Financial Advisors, where our world revolves around you. Hello, everyone. This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with former uh, senior U.S. intelligence officers. And today I'm welcoming back a very special guest. Several weeks ago, we did a recording with him about the early parts of his career when he was a U.S. Special Forces officer and a paramilitary officer at CIA. Today, we're going to resume our interview and talk about the latter portions of his career when he held a couple of senior positions at DOD. His name is Mike Vickers. He has a brand new book out, by all means available. It's a delightful read. I recommend it to you all. And I want to welcome Mike back to the program. Pleasure to be with you, Jim. Mike, so when we ended the interview last time, you talked a little bit about your reasons for leaving CIA and going back to get a couple of advanced degrees. And then I understand you worked in the private sector for a few years, but then you came back to government. Who and what brought you back uh, into the USG? (laughs)
1: So, um, uh, yeah, I did. uh, I got an MBA and then uh, eventually a PhD, but did most of the work while I was out of government and just finished my dissertation. And um, when I left CIA, uh, I thought the rise of China was the next big thing. And, you know, Cold War was over and I was done with uh, intelligence and covert action and special operations and Afghanistan and counterterrorism. And I was wrong about all that. You know, 9-11 uh, showed me and, and even also I would add. Um, Uh, the breakup of the Soviet Union, decline of Russia, you know, and they eventually came back uh, as well. And so, uh, but the only thing I got right was China. And so um, as the Iraq war um, was not going well, President Bush wanted... uh, 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 Triggered a strategic review and wanted a, a range of strategy advice, and so I was asked to go into the Oval Office uh, and meet with him with two very distinguished generals, Wayne Downing, uh, who commanded uh, Special Operations Command, and Barry McCaffrey, who had uh, led one of our divisions in Desert Storm and ended up as our uh, Southern Command commander, and then and then drugs our to offer our thoughts and. After the uh, meeting on Iraq, uh, President pulled me aside and said he had just read this book, Charlie Wilson's War, about our efforts in Afghanistan in the 1980s and particularly at CIA and particularly uh, Congressman Wilson's contributions in adding a lot of funds to the program and asked me a lot of questions about the book, and then asked me, "Well, why'd you leave CIA?" And that one flustered me a fair amount because I didn't really have a good answer. Uh, I, st- I still have mixed feelings about whether I made the right decision or not. And uh, so he thanked me, and then um, a couple of weeks later, I was asked to go again to Camp David, where uh, the president and his war cabinet was meeting on Iraq, and so all the top. Military generals in Iraq and chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld at the time, uh, Secretary of State, UN Ambassador, um, a number of them, um, CIA director, and to offer again my views on kind of Iraq strategy. And uh, and then I got a call from the Under Secretary of Defense for Policy, Eric Edelman, in the Bush administration and said, uh, Can you come into the Pentagon? I want to talk to you about Uh, the Camp David meeting. And so sure. I was doing a lot of consulting for DOD at the time. And he said, "Okay, I know about Camp David. The president's calling Secretary Rumsfeld a lot and saying we've got to get Mike back into government. So we're going to create this position uh, called Assistant Secretary Defense for Special Operations, Low Intensity Conflict and Interdependent Capabilities. And it's a real mouthful. But the first part of that job, um, ASD SOLIC, was created by Congress in 1987 with Special Operations Command, you know, to have the Pentagon civilian oversight of Special Operations Command. And then what they added to it, um, the interdependent capabilities part. Was All our operational forces that I would have policy oversight over. So nuclear weapons, space, cyber, missile defense, all the strategic forces, and then conventional force transformation, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, what they're going to look like in 20 years and the guidance. And so it was just. And of course, then special operations forces and counterterrorism. And so it matched pretty much everything I had been doing uh, in the private sector and consulting in terms of uh, transforming the military, posturing ourselves to deal with China. And I really wanted to get back into the fight. Uh, particularly with Al-Qaeda. And so I accepted the job, and it was for the last two years of the Bush administration. And then President Obama asked Bob Gates to stay on as Secretary of Defense, Jim Clapper as the time the Under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, later DNI, and then me in that assistant secretary job.
0: I had the pleasure of working a little bit uh, with General Wayne Downing toward the end of my career. Sadly, he's no longer with us. Right, right, great man. Yeah, Mike. Please describe to our office what the Predator proposal was all about. So, at you know, right after nine
1: eleven, we mounted this great campaign uh, led by. CIA and the counterterrorism center, George Tenet, and then Kofor Black as the chief of counterterrorism and Hank Crumpton as a key deputy um, to work with the Northern Alliance with special forces, CIA officers and and others, and then U.S. air power uh, to displace the Taliban. Very successful uh, regime was deposed in uh, two months, Um, but then Al-Qaeda scattered. Bin Laden got away and... Uh, At first, uh, you know, as you know, uh, there were a lot of operations to capture Al Qaeda leaders in the settled areas of Pakistan, the cities essentially um, east of the uh, Indus. Um, But eventually, Al-Qaeda found sanctuary again in the federally administered tribal areas, and the threat started growing. And in 2006, we had the transatlantic airliner plot to blow up 10 airliners flying out of the UK to the United States, uh, kill maybe 3,000 people with improvised explosives. Um, it's why we have these TSA restrictions since then, and it was fortunately broken up. And... A national intelligence estimate showed that the homeland threat had really risen again as Al-Qaeda had reestablished its sanctuary uh, with like-minded groups like the Pakistan Taliban and the Khanis. And so President Bush wanted a new strategy. Our strategy in the Afghanistan-Pakistan border region wasn't working. And we were, of course, at war in Iraq. And... Um, uh, and Afghanistan still, and the insurgency was uh, picking up. And the Predator aircraft, uh, essentially armed reconnaissance uh, drone with great endurance and precision weapons and a suite of different kinds of sensors, um, was in really short supply. You know, it was developed in the late 90s, used uh, uh, without weapons in Afghanistan for the first time in September 2000, where we got a glimpse of bin Laden Uh, but couldn't do anything about it. Then it was armed and, uh, was able to be used a bit uh, in in late 2001 in the um, toppling the Taliban regime, and then a few times around the world in the next five years. But we didn't have enough of these aircraft. You know, we only had six or so when I became an assistant secretary, six orbits, as we say, takes typically about three aircraft to have one 24-7 coverage over an area. And, And so we embarked on a great program to expand that, which we eventually did to like 65. So we Increased it by a factor of more than 10 and with a surge capability to 85. And they were mostly in Iraq. We had a few of them dedicated to the counterterrorism mission against Al-Qaeda, uh, three aircraft to be specific, three orbits to be specific. Um, but we would need a lot a lot more, and hence its expansion. We would also need a new strategy. And so I was asked to work um, with a few elements from DOD, and the White House and then CIA to put together a strategy that would deal with this new Al-Qaeda sanctuary in in, uh, the Afghanistan-Pakistan border region. And the elements of the strategy involved uh, more predator strikes, which would mean more predators and uh, different policies associated with that, uh, cross-border special operations raids, and a couple of other Lines of operation I I can't talk about because they're still classified and and then capture operations with the Pakistanis, uh, Pakistani intelligence and the uh, policy changes that were so important involved. um, First, we only took strikes with um, Pakistani uh, approval between 2004 and 2008. And so we had done not quite three dozen strikes, but the Pakistanis had made a deal with militants in North Waziristan to leave them alone in 2006. And so they got tighter and tighter. And so in 2007 is this threat was really gathering uh, to the homeland, um, we weren't able to do any strikes against Al-Qaeda high-value targets. And Mike Hayden, former director of CIA, famously said we were 0 for 07, you know, zero HVT strikes in 2007. And that was kind of the breaking point for President Bush. Um, and the reason for that was the Pakistanis would either delay until the target had moved and we lost custody, or they would just disapprove it in the first case. Um, and so the first change was to essentially move to unilateral operations and notify the Pakistanis, concurrently after we did the strike rather than before and seeking approval. And that made a big, big difference. The second change, the second big change involved a number of changes to uh, targeting policy. So first, we introduced this thing called signature strikes, which rather there's kind of two kinds of predator strikes, personality, you know who the target you're going after is, you know, it's uh, Joe Blow uh, or In a signature strike, you know it's a senior al-Qaeda leader based on certain signatures or tradecraft, the way they operate, um, and watch them for a long time. But you don't know the exact identity. You don't know which one it is. Uh, You may have an idea, but you you don't know that. And that became a very important policy innovation. And then expanding the list to more al-Qaeda leaders and to their safe haven providers, was the third element of those policy changes. And all of them added up, the unilateral strikes and these more predators and the change of uh, in strategy to great success in 2008. So uh, in the last few months of 2008, we took eight Al-Qaeda high value targets off the battlefield. Uh, and Mike Hayden famously said we were eight for 08 rather than 0 for 07. And um, we developed this strategy between 2007 and 2008, and it was interrupted for a while. We couldn't implement it because Pakistan went into political turmoil. Musharraf was losing his grip on power. He'd lost the confidence of the army and he had lawyers rebelling against him. And that played out over several months. So we had about a six month delay before we could implement this strategy. And then I was chosen to brief President Bush and the national security team for his final approval in August 2008 that signed off on all this. And then Mike Caden, Steve Hadley, the national security advisor, and I went around to the key congressional leaders when they came back in September. Labor Day, essentially, um, to brief them on uh, on the new uh, new campaign, and the campaign produced dramatic results. By 2010, it was successfully transitioned between President Bush and President Obama. By 2010, Al Qaeda tried to just hunker down and not conduct planning, uh, and the intensity of strikes continued through uh, 2012 and really suppressed the threat emanating from that from that region.
0: Mike, as you know well. While Al-Qaeda had a a very uh, substantial base in Afghanistan, they also dispersed to a number of other regions. Delineate for our audience some of these other AQ um, localities.
1: Sure. So, you know, one of the successes of Al-Qaeda, uh, besides its centralized control and planning uh, operations against the United States, was its was its ability to spread and through through franchises or affiliates. Yeah. Uh, and so the, um, you know, core Al-Qaeda was in the Afghanistan-Pakistan border region in Afghanistan before 9-11 and then um, the federally administered tribal areas, primarily in Pakistan after. And so the uh, the next most dangerous affiliate uh, to core Al-Qaeda uh, was Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And that was formed as a merger of Al-Qaeda in Yemen and Al-Qaeda in Saudi Arabia uh, into uh, one group in uh, 2006 and steadily... Um, it became um, the, not only a bigger threat to Yemen, but a, um, a threat to Saudi Arabia. They did an assassination attempt against uh, uh, the interior minister, Mohammed bin Nayef, and uh, well, the bomb and um, improvised explosive and uh, a number of homeland threats uh, emerged out of there. In 2009, we had a army major who stood up on a table at a medical facility in Fort Hood and uh, started yelling, Allahu Akbar, and started shooting people, killing 13 and wounding uh, 30. And he had been in touch with a uh, American citizen in Yemen, Anwar al Alaki, who uh, was kind of organizing these external plots. Uh, and then a few months later, Christmas 2009, we had the underwear bomber, uh, Umar Farouk Abdul Muttalib, who was on a, f- I think, Northwest Airlines, if I remember right, flight to Detroit and had improvised explosives in his underwear and tried to detonate them. Didn't work. Uh, it cost him a few problems in his private parts but uh, narrow escape from a uh, blown-up aircraft. You know, the bomb was solid. It should have worked, and it just didn't. Um, And then later, we had another plot uh, where they tried to send explosive printer cartridges uh, to the United States. Um, We took out Anwar Alaki in a drone strike in September 2011, required special review by the Department of Justice, given he was a U.S. citizen. Um, and did a number of other operations in Yemen to try to tamp down the threat between 2008 and uh, 2014. Uh, And particularly as Yemen transitioned governments from the Saleh regime that I know you know well for 31 years to uh, the the Hadi regime. And then unfortunately, the Houthis took over. Um, The second most dangerous threat in terms of uh, homeland attack was a group that formed in Syria, first Jabhat al-Nusra and then splinter groups uh, for Al-Qaeda. And Al-Qaeda, after Arab Spring, you know, and it spread different places, Libya and elsewhere, and the Syrian civil war, Al-Qaeda leadership really thought that Syria was going to be the next great battleground, that it was finally in the heart of the Arab world, and that's where things would take place. And as this threat grew... Uh, And I would add What became ISIS, the Islamic state from Iraq, formerly Al Qaeda in Iraq and lots of other names, had also reconstituted itself in Syria. So you had these dueling jihadist groups, and they also developed sophisticated bomb making technology. Uh, I would also just let me go back for a second. Al Qaeda in Yemen had this very sophisticated bomb maker, Ibrahim al-Asiri, who was killed, I think, in 2017 or 2018. But uh, he was the guy who tried to blow up. Mohammed bin Nayef and designed all these crazy bombs. So he was, he was a, definitely a global threat. And there were similar things in Syria, uh, threats to Europe and elsewhere. And then Al-Qaeda uh had a group, East Africa, Al-Qaeda, but eventually merged into a group called uh, Al-Shabaab in Somalia, and uh, a number of Al-Qaeda veterans from the embassy bombings in 98 uh, for a third front. And Yemen and Somalia were kind of an integrated theater, as Syria and Iraq were. And since I mentioned Iraq, um, Al-Qaeda had a franchise there from 2004 on Al-Qaeda in Iraq, led by uh, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, mostly focused on defeating um, the U.S. occupation of Iraq, uh, but plotting other attacks in the region and carrying a few out, you know, as you know, in Jordan and a few other places. And uh, that group eventually was battered down, but morphed into the Islamic State, recovered in Syria, and then came back to invade Iraq later. And then a group that had been in North Africa, uh, the Salafist group for preaching and combat, became uh, al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb, mostly Algeria, northern Mali, uh, and uh, Niger. Uh, Mostly focused on kidnapping and ransoms, um, but occasionally a threat uh, to Europe and elsewhere. And let's see, who who have I missed? Then uh, the final one, um, I think in 2014, Al-Qaeda established a local affiliate. It's the only one it created from the ground up. Uh, called Al-Qaeda in the uh, Indian subcontinent that was kind of co-located with core Al-Qaeda in the Afghanistan-Pakistan border region, but had operations in India and Bangladesh in addition to um, Pakistan. So you know, it was a global franchise stretching essentially from Mali uh, to Bangladesh. And then with uh, other groups like Jama'a Islamiyah in um, uh, Indonesia and elsewhere, and Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines, that also contri- other Salafist groups also contributed to Al Qaeda's global reach.
0: Mike, as you well know, there were several successful operations against these dispersed elements of uh, AQ. Describe a couple of those for our audience.
1: Sure. So we use different strategies uh, against the different groups and concentrated our predator resources on the most dangerous ones. So core Al Qaeda, Al Qaeda in Yemen um, principally, and then uh, a bit the Al-Qaeda groups in Syria, although uh, that soon became an ISIS problem as well. And uh, in Somalia, we used a range of things, including African Union forces uh, to drive Al-Shabaab out of uh, uh, Mogadishu and uh, partner forces in and the French as well in, um, in uh, North Africa. So different strategies in, in different theaters. And of course, Iraq was a war zone. And so one operation I describe in the book um, was a raid we did against the East African Al-Qaeda leader, Salih Nabhan, uh, who was very uh, operational security savvy, much like bin Laden and other top Al-Qaeda leaders and very hard to uh, to track. And we had tried a missile strike against him uh, one time we located him, but missed, you know, came close, but missed. And we finally got a. good human source and found that he was going to be leaving a compound going somewhere else Uh, we couldn't strike him in that compound for collateral damage reasons and so a plan was developed to uh, do a an air raid uh, while he was on this drive on this highway and so the original plan was to use precision guided munitions from a aircraft drop drop a small bomb and target the convoy. And then, um, at, at the last minute that proved, um, unfeasible for weather and other reasons. And so we switched to little bird helicopters that flew from ships, uh, off the coast of Somalia and were able to do a targeted gunship raid against the convoy and able to confirm his DNA, um, and, you know, down um, seals uh, right after the strike, able to confirm his DNA that it was a successful a successful air attack against his um, small convoy.
0: Tell our viewers about uh, the actually fairly well known Maersk, Alabama operation.
1: Sure. So that wasn't that was related to Somalia as well, not uh, Al Qaeda, more piracy. Uh, so Maersk, Alabama, there was a big in. Increase in uh, piracy against commercial shipping, you know, going through the Red Sea, uh, even if ships were far offshore, and a group took over this Merck Alabama. You know, a, a, a movie was made out of it, starring Tom Hanks as Captain Phillips, and and so we organized a uh, a, a rescue operation uh, for Captain Phillips um, that involved. Um, seals parachuting into the water, um, and then getting on other ships, um, and then, um, uh, bringing the, as the pirates on the ship were running short on water and others and had their little boat, uh, uh, behind, um, brought that boat behind one of our, uh you know, command ships uh, and then snipers were able to take out um, the pirates and and rescue uh, Captain Phillips. And it was, uh, you know, with choppy uh, uh, surf conditions and everything else, it was really very masterful uh, shooting.
0: In your view, what are the four important elements of a successful counterterrorism strategy?
1: So these are the things that we really learned from 9-11 and adapt and put this together over time. Um, you know, and the, the overall imperative is to deny them sanctuary every time we have let these groups have uh, that have aims of hitting the United States a couple years unmolested, the threat to the United States has gone up. So we saw that before 9/11. we saw that after they reconstituted in the Pakistan border region, uh, the threat went way up until we started attacking that with our new strategy. Um, as the uh, threat increased in Yemen, um, for for a couple of years, and then in in Syria as well, mm-hmm. and so um, uh, you know a key lesson there is to deny deny sanctuary, right. and then the the operational. Implementation of that, you know, again, with the goal of disrupting plots, trying to dismantle the organization, not just take out its leaders, but its planners, its facilitators, financiers, safe haven providers, et cetera, so that they can't conduct operations Um, and then ultimately defeat them and prevent their reconstitution. And so. Both offense and defense was necessary to make this work. You know, painful lesson learned in 9-11 was that we needed better screening procedures for for flights and also to harden and lock our cockpit doors, you know, so that we couldn't have a turn aircraft into missiles and crash them into things. And, you know, sounds like a simple fix, but we didn't do it before 9-11 and we did after. And so that hardening your defenses and scanners as, you know, as bomb technology got better and you moved to improvise. Devices uh, of various kinds and liquid explosives. You know, the, it, it was a cat and mouse game, but that first part of hardening your defenses is critical. And, you know, intelligence is obviously a key part of that. And then the second is counterterrorism operations against these groups, even in war zones, but particularly outside of war zones where Al-Qaeda was mostly located, um, is really an intelligence operation first and foremost. And then some uh, force to either capture or kill the terrorists. Uh, It might be a local force, you know, working with liaison or it might be uh, one of our special operations forces or a predator strike or whatever the case is. But um, they're all driven by precise intelligence. Um, you know, I tried to compare in the book, you know, in the uh, covert action campaign against the Soviets in the 1980s, we needed intelligence on Soviet order of battle and the Afghan resistance and targets and a range of things. but. It had to be only so precise because we were fighting a large secret war against in counterterrorism operations against al-Qaeda. It was really critically dependent on just precision intelligence. If you didn't have that, you didn't have operations. You know, and so the the role of analysts became a lot more operational in counterterrorism than elsewhere. You know, rather than judging how's the war going, which they did, too, it really is targeting and lots of other stuff that's just real, real precision. So that's the second part is you and what we found there, too, is that. As we went into new theater, sometimes we didn't have the assets necessarily we needed. And so it might take us a year and a half or so to really build up the human network to do that kind of targeting or develop the appropriate SIGINT capabilities if there were, um, you know, different communications technologies involved where we didn't have the appropriate sensor and then getting dense uh, imagery coverage uh, with Predator and and other things to... um, uh, have a full targeting package and develop the strategy called find, fix, finish, uh, exploit and analyze. But the first three are really the key to it outside of war zones. Uh, in war zones, the other two become very important. And then the third part really is uh, aggressive offensive operations. You can't just play defense in this world. You know, you've got to strike them to keep them off balance. You have to do raids. The techniques may vary depending on the theater and the appropriateness of the instrument. Uh, We might use partner forces to dislodge them, you know, as we did against ISIS with the Syrian Kurds and others. But that constant pressure is really critical um, to changing the balance. And then the final one is a global counterterrorism network. And it's another thing we had in parts before 9-11, but we really didn't have it in the way we needed it to disrupt plots in Europe or other areas where we couldn't do, or you know, other areas outside of war zones where we couldn't use these more kinetic instruments. You know, we would have to rely on intelligence and then work with local security forces to disrupt the plot and arrest them. And so that network of sharing intelligence and working with liaison to uh, disrupt these plots became very critical too. And lots of plots were never got past that stage because we built this this network after 9/11. And again, it took us better part of a decade to really do that, but it paid big dividends. So it's really those four elements: hardened defense. Uh, intelligence-driven operations, aggressive offensive, and you know, continuous offensive operations, and then this global network of counterterrorism partners.
0: Mike, what visibility did you have, and what role did you play in the Abbottabad operation to get uh, Osama bin Laden? Sure. Well, I had a I had a central role. Um,
1: we found Osama bin Laden uh, in. Uh, Late August um, 2010, after we were able to follow his courier, uh, Abu Ahmed al-Kuwaiti was his kunya, um, back to uh, the Abbottabad compound uh, from the Afghanistan-Pakistan border region. And, you know, it was one of the great intelligence operations in history. Lots of people... Played parts in that, uh, going from you know starting with different strategies of uh, trying to analyze where Bin Laden's video statements might have him located. Uh, that didn't pay dividends. Uh, tracking all his family members because some family members, particularly sons, were tr- rejoining him in the Fatah and some are t- in in Pakistan, and sometimes um, uh, why wife, a wife too uh, one, uh, of his multi. Multiple wives, and um, but the one that paid dividends was uh, going after how he communicated with Al Qaeda, which was through this courier. And it took um, some years. Uh, there, there were some false starts where there was some reporting that the courier was uh, killed, and it was actually a brother. Um, it took a while to learn the courier's true name and where. He might be located and then to specifically target him. And so it took nine years to get from Tora Bora, where bin Laden escaped, you know, in late 2001 to August 2010. Mm -hmm. And so after we found him, um, CIA's deputy director, Michael Morrell, took me and the vice chairman aside after a deputies meeting in the White House Situation Room um, to an intelligence office in the old executive office building. You know, he told us, stay after. I have something important I need to brief you on and laid out what we knew about this compound at this point. And there were only, and and the Director Panetta briefed Secretary Gates and Admiral Mullen. So there were only four of us in the Pentagon, in DOD, uh, aware of this operation for um, several months from September to uh, February of September 2010 to February. And a lot of that time was trying to improve the intelligence case and try to get additional collection because it was a strong case, but it was still a circumstantial one. You know, this house was built. Um, the family that lived there never left. They burned their trash. They had very high walls, including a wall on the third floor balcony. They had no landline, no connection to the Internet. Kids didn't go to school. Um you know there were still visuals outside of the compound or in the courtyard and things but you know it was strange and so there was something there was somebody there who did not want to be seen and and abadabad is a, a shishi area where pakistanis have you know go to escape the heat and you know 35 miles north of islamabad and um but no specific evidence tied bin laden um to that and um and we had gotten a few glimpses of him. We called him the pacer. He would walk around a compound um, courtyard for exercise with trees over it uh, periodically. But that was about it. And in um, at the end of 2010, um, uh, uh, Director Panetta and Morrell asked me to come over to CIA to work with a small team on developing options to finish bin Laden. And uh, it's the first time I couldn't wait. In my life for Christmas to be over so I could get back to work and uh, we developed some initial options, airstrikes and raids and then unilateral operations, uh, a strike or a raid or a bilateral with the Pakistani, some form of raid five or six and all took them to the White House started doing intensive White House meetings beginning in February 2011, including five meetings with the president. So lots of deputies meetings, lots of uh, uh, principals meetings, and then five with the president to make a decision. And um, still couldn't tell many people. So slowly we brought in uh, our special operations commander, uh, Admiral Bill McRaven. Um, to start looking at raid options. Uh, we had a channel to a B-2 bomber uh, force to do an airstrike, uh, to do targeting, and uh, started fleshing out these, these options, and then progressively added a, a few more people, and then um, uh, to look at air planning and other things. And then Uh, In a clandestine facility, we constructed mock-ups so that an assault force could practice. Uh, You know, after looking at the collateral damage from a B-2 strike, the president decided didn't want to go that way. So then it became either a smaller drone strike or a raid of some kind or another and uh, started rehearsing the raid options uh, and then bringing more of the force. And I remember when we brought the force in, you know, it was right after the Libyan war started. uh, uh, uh so ended up toppling Gaddafi and the assault force all thought it was going to Libya for uh, counterproliferation concerns. And when the CIA analysts told them, you know, we're all in a big hangar that, no, we, we think we found bin Laden. And then um, Admiral McRaven said, uh, OK, we've got to start rehearsing this to see if it's feasible. I got to get back to the president. Uh, and then started working that. Um, and then for the actual Operation, um, we decided to do it under CIA authorities for a variety of reasons. And so I was with Director Panetta in CIA for the formal um, command and control of the operation with uh, Admiral McRaven reporting to Secretary Panetta. And then the principals were at the White House in that famous photo, you know, just watching uh uh, the operation um, uh, passively uh, and then at the White House, um, you know, that evening after it. So from start to finish, it was um, almost 10 months and, um, you know, it was the biggest secret in Washington at the time and, you know, one of the most extraordinary things I've ever been involved in.
0: Yeah. Well, a great piece of intelligence work and great work by special operations. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Mike, what was the significance and the result of the Rydell review on Afghan policy in the fall of 2009? Sure. So uh, it was actually spring and, uh, of
1: 2009. So, um, you know, as Afghanistan started deteriorating, the insurgency was getting worse from 2003 on, but really 2006 to eight, it had spread more across the country. And, you know, for a while, it was in the Taliban heartland in the south. All the fighting was in the south of Afghanistan after we had kicked the Taliban out and uh, and then started spreading to the eastern provinces and eventually north and west. And so President Bush had actually triggered a couple reviews between 2006 and 2008 and added more troops to Afghanistan. But. Basically, everything we had was going to Iraq. And so at the beginning of the Obama administration, you know, there were several things that this was the first wartime transition we had since 1968 across parties and uh, a wartime transition period. So, you know, among the things transferred was this new strategy to go after Al Qaeda successfully. The Iraq war, which was not yet winding down, but the surge was working. Uh, you know, got very successful and started to get successful in 2007 when it was initiated, got very successful in 2008, continued through 09. But, you know, President Obama had to draw that down gradually. Uh, the worsening situation in Afghanistan and then efforts to st- uh, try to prevent Iran or delay Iran from getting nuclear weapons. So all those were kind of the big issues on um, the plate as we transitioned administrations. And so Right away, President Obama commissioned a review on Afghanistan policy because more troops were starting to go there. uh, U.S. troops as the insurgency worsened. So Bruce Rydell, former uh, longtime senior CIA analyst and NSC staffer, uh, was brought in to lead it. And he looked at a number of uh, options. uh, and recommended a fully resourced counter and I participated in this review a senior person for Dod um, for um, uh, counterinsurgency in Afghanistan before that we kind of had a counter terrorism mission uh, up until Early two thousand nine, and and recommended twenty one thousand troops, seventeen thousand mostly half of them marines, and then um, uh, the rest army, and then um, four thousand trainers. So seventeen thousand combat troops, four thousand trainers and advisors for a total of twenty one. And so President Obama approved that and. Late March, you know, two months after taking office, essentially, and thought, okay, you know, I've ramped up in Afghanistan, I'm done, and then um, as the situation continued to get worse, um, Secretary Gates. Uh, came to the conclusion that he needed a new commander in Afghanistan. Uh, And so he put General Stan McChrystal in the job, uh, replacing Dave McKernan. Um, And then McChrystal did his own review uh, as he took command in the summer of 2009. And he came back with recommendations for large numbers of, of troops uh, uh from uh as many as 80,000 to 40,000 to uh something less than that and that hit like a grenade in washington you know that we uh, we thought we just solved the afghanistan problem you know and now you're asking for you know doubling or tripling what we just provided you know some months ago and so eventually so it triggered big nsc review um by President Obama's NSC and with the president a lot. And by December 2009, uh, compromise kind of worked out by Secretary Gates. President Obama agreed to kind of a split between the 30,000 and 40,000 increase option. Uh, 30,000 U.S. troops plus, if I remember right. Six or seven thousand from NATO that would get us pretty close to the to the forty thousand that uh, General McChrystal requested, but and President Obama put a time limit on this surge of uh, of uh, twelve to eighteen months, uh, and that then commenced this big surge, two thousand ten to through two thousand eleven
0: uh, in Afghanistan. Mike, describe your visit to China. In, in 2015. What was the purpose and what were the results? Sure. So I had gone to uh, China a
1: fair amount. They were our ally in our secret war against the Soviets in the 1980s, and, uh, but hadn't been back since. And, uh, you know, it was just too busy in my uh, almost eight years as a policymaker and IC leader uh, with the war with Al Qaeda and lots of other stuff. And um, um, so finally we had hosted the Chinese several times um, in the Pentagon, different elements, their minister of defense and, uh, and others. And then I had hosted my counterpart, their head of um, intelligence and the Pentagon. And uh, he said, well, you, know, you haven't been to China in a long time. You ought to come back. And, you know, we had issues we wanted to talk about. They were doing very aggressive cyber operations against us. Uh, five officers of the PLA were indicted by the Department of Justice uh, for stealing stuff from U.S. companies. And, you know, and then also, too, you know, in any kind of superpower competition, you know, going back to the Cold War, you you want lines of communication open for um, rules of the road at sea so you don't have maritime incidents that lead to war or, you know, other forms of communication channels, hotlines that you can talk on, et cetera. So those were kind of the issues on the agenda. And so uh, got in. and I, you know, and honestly, I thought, you know, this competition with China is heating up uh, since Deng Xiaoping had come to power in 2012 and it's gonna continue. And I wanted to get a look at the place, you know, how it had changed since the 1980s and uh, uh, and how their economy was doing and how high tech it was and other things. And so uh, I had a visit there. Talked to their equivalent of the uh, National Defense University, met a lot of senior counterparts, including the number two per military person under uh, Deng Xiaoping, who almost never met with um, U.S. officials. I was one of the few that he, he met with. And then uh, even some special forces units, you know, to show me their techniques and things like that, drawing on my younger days and things. So all in all, it was a good visit, a sobering visit, and uh, made me think about, you know, how, how we compete with them down the road.
0: Mike, in your book, you mentioned the transition from Moscow rules to Beijing rules. Describe what that means. Sure. So for um,
1: clandestine operations, you know, the the you know as you know better than i the um most difficult ones to encounter is when you've got you know constant surveillance as we did in the cold war in moscow and so special techniques developed to operate in those really um uh, hostile environments but y- yeah, uh, it, mostly it was physical surveillance with with you know other things thrown in, but uh, large numbers of either vehicular or on foot, and you know, and if if you got out of sight for a brief period, they could dispatch teams to go see if you put a chalk mark down or anything like that, and so. You know, these techniques, variety of things for in some cases for officers to escape surveillance and get black, you know, became known as Moscow rules and success successfully developed to be able to handle agents uh, in the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc. And the challenge for us going forward now. Beijing has become a very difficult environment and other places where they export their technology because of the advent of all these cameras, surveillance cameras and ability to track cell phones and then use automation and machine learning and stuff to identify patterns of behavior. And as soon as someone gets out of their pattern and so it's way more technical now, of, you know, when can something see me? When can it not? And so developing, you know, the appropriate tradecraft to deal with that kind of surveillance uh, is a challenge for, you know, our old director of, op- of operations. And uh, but I'm sure they'll work really hard at it. But, uh, uh, you know, it's, it, that's one way the new Cold War is different from the old Cold War is the ad- the
0: exploitation of all these new technologies. Mike, based on your many years of government service, share with our audience your key principles for a successful career. Sure. So, you know, some of the big ones, I think, are
1: and I don't know this would work for everybody, but I really chose jobs and careers that I was really passionate about, you know, where I got tremendous psychological income, you know, the the reason I went into the special forces and CIA's director of operations is I wanted to do great deeds, you know, to, to help our country and where an individual could really make a difference. And so whatever that is for you, whether it's cyber space or undersea or uh, targeting or unit you, you, or things like we did, it's hard to match that anywhere else in in, in life. I think it's a very rewarding career and it's just, you know, find your, find your niche. And then, you know, at some point, if you're going to go to the higher realms of national security, particularly if you're a career person who's come up, uh, either in the military or foreign service or, uh, intelligence community, you've got to broaden, you know, you can't just really, I mean, you might end up at the head of your agency or the deputy if you're, you know, really good in SIGINT or something at NSA. But, um, you know, for other jobs, it really helps when you um, learn some different things either broader parts of the agency you know as you know the dsT or analysis if you're you come from operations or vice versa or if you're an analyst learning enough about operations if you're going to be the deputy director uh, and you're representing CIA and policy meetings and if you're in the military or have oversight of the military then understanding you know a wider range of warfare and so uh, in my years out of government I had acquired a lot of knowledge about uh, nuclear weapons you know, I was trained initially to use small nuclear weapons, but our whole nuclear arsenal and strategies there when I had policy oversight of that became helpful as well as, as, you know, a lot of our conventional capabilities, space and undersea and global strike, precision strike and others. And so that that broadening at the appropriate time, I think, is important. And then mentors were critical. Throughout my career from the Vietnam veterans who taught me a lot about combat tactics, the Eastern European emigres who taught me about uh, what it might be like to operate behind Soviet lines in Soviet occupied Eastern Europe um, And then mentors don't just teach you, they they believe in you or they give you opportunities. And that's certainly what I had at CIA. I was given opportunities way above my grade level by senior officers who, for one reason or another, you know, thought I could do something useful from the invasion of Grenada to Afghanistan and others. Same thing in the special forces. And then finally, you know, as a policymaker with people like secretary gates and secretary panetta you know who enlarged my portfolio pretty substantially you know and that relates to another one you know you got to be careful with uh i had read something once by former CEO of Goldman Sachs and Secretary of Treasury in the late Bush administration during the financial crisis, Hank Paulson, very successful man, who talked about one of his keys growing up in Goldman Sachs was a thing he called job enlargement, which was, you know, starting doing your job well and then looking for opportunities to expand it without, you know, having the sharp elbows that, you know, makes your colleagues want to kill you. Um, but I found that, uh, you know, I didn't know that's what I was doing, but I had practiced that a few times in my career and it, luckily it, it it paid off. So those were the main main things, I think.
0: Well, the book is by all means available. It is a fascinating read. I recommend it to you all. And I want to thank Mike Vickers for really a fascinating uh, second interview. Thank you, Jim. AFIO is a small, non-profit, apolitical, educational organization whose main mission is to help prepare the next generation of intelligence officers to confront the challenges our nation faces in the years ahead. To learn more or support our outreach programs, visit www.afio.com.